0: How does power shape our climate and our future? Climate One conversations feature all dimensions of the climate emergency, the personal and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton.
1: The power that we do have is to shift the needle towards change by shifting the culture because culture shifts cause shifts in law.
0: Jamie Margolin is co-founder and co-executive director of the youth climate justice organization Zero Hour. At age 18, she's also the author of Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It. She'll join us later to explain how she's helped build a youth climate movement from first-time activists to families on the front lines of pollution, a subject that came up in the most recent presidential debate. The families that we're talking about are employed heavily and they're making a lot of money,
2: more money than they've ever made. When you look at those jobs, they're short term, they're low wage, they are not jobs that help people in the long
0: haul. That's Dr. Dorsita Taylor, professor of environmental justice at the Yale School for the Environment and an original leader of the environmental justice movement. I began our conversation by asking Dr. Taylor for her reaction to a definition of power cited by Dr. Martin Luther King in March of 1968. Speaking in Memphis to striking sanitation workers, he said, quote, we can all get more together than we can apart. We can get more organized together than we can apart. This is the way to gain power. Power is the ability to achieve purpose. Power is the ability to affect change. We need power. I think it's very
2: uh, prescient and it's still very uh, apropos about what's going on. Because power really is uh, not only the ability to do things, but it's also the ability to get others to do what you want them to do. And it's the ability of groups of people to consolidate and actually elevate their ability to get their desires accomplished. And we are seeing that in the US at an unprecedented level where very small numbers of people are able to put forward narratives, but also to execute plans, to get outcomes that they desire, to benefit themselves and those that they value, but also to disenfranchise others uh, who are not in the in-group with them. Uh, today, with uh, traditional ways of organizing and doing and, mo- and uh, mobilizing, in addition to technology, to media, to um, kind of understand global interconnections, we're able to do it on massive scales with um, very different amounts of resources. So uh, so with power comes that understanding of how uh, one can manipulate va- various things to get that outcome, even if one's poor or one's not uh, in the traditional class of power brokers.
0: Right. And uh, supporters of strong, racially inclusive climate action have garnered power this year, as evidenced by uh, their presence in the street, the school strikes, uh, and the first ever question about environmental justice during a presidential debate. Debate moderator Kristen Welker asked President Trump why people in Texas living near oil refineries and chemical plants should give him another four years when he's eliminated environmental protections that regulate those types of facilities. What did you think when you heard or read about that question?
2: You know, a response to that is it is precisely for people when they vote to not just think of the vote as I'm voting for health or I'm voting for schools or libraries, but to start connecting the dots. That's another dimension of power in how we understand how things that might seem completely disparate, do I live beside a coal-fired plant or not? Or do I live beside an oil refinery is indeed related to how many COVID cases are in your community, how the healthcare system operates, what kind of hospitals you have, uh, what kind of schools, illnesses in school, how your children perform. And it's once the electorate, regardless of education, regardless of cultural background, once you can start connecting large things that look unrelated, then you really have taken a very first step in liberating yourself educating yourself but making very informed decision that will make it very clear how you should vote in this upcoming election
0: and isn't it true that people of color actually poll higher when it comes to climate concern and change, partly because the reasons you just said, that they're, they're often uh, closer to the impacts? Um, yes.
2: Uh, indeed, not only do they poll higher, studies that have been conducted since uh, the early 1990s, again, at the beginning of the formalizing of the environmental justice movement, the League of Conservation Voters have tracked how people are voting. And they've tracked uh, the Senate and the House and Black congressional representatives vote more systematically, pro-environment, support environmental legislation than any other group in Congress. And that's something that doesn't often pop out. But that kind of pro-environmental voting record has transitioned or has translated into the communities that they represent, wanting these things. So it's not just League of Conservation voters. If we look at Gallup polls that go uh, back quite a distance, decades, we see African Americans, Latinx communities are more likely to say they will support government spending for environmental improvements than other groups in the society. And so what we're seeing with the youth around climate and the interest in climate and the activism that's going on all around across the country is coming out of that background of communities that are willing to support, pay for and opt for options that will improve our chances uh, in terms of dealing with negative climate impacts.
0: There's another current going the other direction, though, which is fossil fuel companies have cozied up to the NAACP and other organizations to try to get uh, Black and Latinx communities to kind of come on board for some of their uh, plans, power plants, etc., that aren't necessarily in the interest of of the members of those organizations. So speak to the other side about how some powerful fossil fuel interests have tried to work their way into those communities of color and some of the top tier institutions?
2: Yes, good question. That piece of it has always been a part of the divide and conquer strategy. So if you go back again to the 1980s, 1990s, uh, corporations, for instance, when they wanted to site their polluting facilities in the South, they would uh, come in with the promise of jobs. Uh, So they take the economic argument, uh, and when you look at those jobs, they're short-term, they're low-wage, they are not jobs that help people in the long haul. So that's been a long-time strategy to try to get some communities of color to host these facilities, or to get organizations led by people of color to endorse uh, what's going on they have never made extremely large inroads into the wider community because if you look at again if you look at climate if you look at broader environmental justice for every one or so group that they might get to endorse or to collaborate you have a large number of other groups completely opposing or not wanting to be a part of uh, the the corporate, uh, necessarily corporate response. Uh, That being said, you do have to think through what are the ways in which we move forward to get better environmental outcomes if that's the the long game is that if that's the long-term goal then one has to see how um how that happens uh how does one hold corporations responsible for harms but also help them to see how they can shift and help uh, the communities that are being affected to see how they can actually improve uh environment community living, but overall standards.
0: The American story is largely about land and manifest destiny. And in this election, one side presents a story of glorious American exceptionalism and white dominance. Another side is reckoning with an American story that's fraught with actions that are hard for white people to confront the stealing of land from indigenous Americans, enslaving blacks and keeping out Asians, what is that story from your perspective, and what do we not learn in school that we should have
2: uh, in school, I think many people missed uh or the discussion just didn't occur around uh how do we how do we still all benefit but acknowledge uh difficult chapters in history that occurred difficult decisions. Uh, immoral decisions, decisions that were patently incorrect, how do we acknowledge those and think about our society today and think about how do we move forward and make uh, some of those whole? So when we have a country in which some people were deliberately seen as objects, as just tools to get agriculture completed, to clear the land, uh, people that had no rights simply because of their skin color, uh, other people whose lands were just, someone just looked at it and decided, I want that, I'm going to take it, you will not have it. How do we today, with the hindsight of history, but with um. I think in some ways, a more sophisticated understanding of how we should engage as human beings. How do we move forward and have that respect for each other, have that understanding that somebody's skin color shouldn't be so fearful that uh, they're killed simply because of how they look, not because of what they think, not because of what they can contribute to the society, but simply based on how they look, How are we gonna in the long haul succeed as a society if we continue what we're continuing now? Who's to say we're not killing off the next uh, person who could invent the very thing that could save us all when we run out of resources? Uh, What are we gonna do in this country when in about another 25 or 30 years, we become a country where there are more people of color in the country than whites? What are we going to do and how are we preparing ourselves to reconcile that and get the best out of each other, not the worst, not um, not elevate the people who are willing to play to the worst, but to go through the uncomfortable spaces that we need to traverse to be able to understand and move in a way that we all benefit later on when we need clean water, fresh air, uh, enough food as a globe for us to all survive.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate and justice in 2020. Coming up, finding inspiration in history for environmental justice today.
2: Harriet Tubman, I was reading a bedtime story to my twin daughters when they were about three years old, I felt I just stopped in my track and I says, she's an environmentalist.
0: She's one of the earliest environmentalists. That's up next when Climate One continues.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about shifting power with Dorsita Taylor, professor of environmental justice at the Yale School for the Environment. In addition to researching diversity, equity, and inclusion, Dr. Taylor spends a lot of time teaching students who she says are growing up in a world that's very different from their parents. Something like the national parks, It um, it was a
2: brilliant idea to think about as a country, do we have mm-hmm. these most amazing spaces that when you go to, I've taken students to Yellowstone and they stand, you know, um, groups of students that are very multicultural. Mm. Uh, students most are coming from inner city neighborhoods. They just happen to be really incredibly smart students that nobody uh, or a lot of people don 't give an opportunity to in the environmental field. Mm. Uh, I do in my program take them to the to Yellowstone and we use are coming in on the trail and If you are going to the um, the rim of the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone the the canyon is behind you as you approach it and the waterfall is behind you and you're looking down into a very spectacular part of the canyon, but it's when you turn around and they're, you know, they're usually talking because they're 20 they're something years old and they're on their phones that are not working and I often <laughs> point and say to them, look, look behind you. Mm. And when they see it, that look of awe on their faces and the look of awe on everybody's faces But that being said, we cannot uh, go there and experience that awe without recognizing that this was once another people's homeland. And that homeland was taken, taken without adequate compensation, taken, period, to create the space that we can now, since 1872, go in and enjoy. Uh, The idea of not Uh, turning them over to unfettered commercialism. That was something that was brilliant that people saw early on, that if, if there weren't protections around them, they would be put into private hands. That was another piece of it. These should never be in private hands to own them. It should be for the people to enjoy. But the idea that we don't want to fully own that these are native homelands and that we should reconcile how we go forward with this, how we think about compensation, how we think about who runs it, whose ideas should be reflected in it. Uh, You know, when you go to spaces like the Grand Teton you'll stand at headquarters on the plaque that literally has these pointers that to every peak and it tells you the name of the first white male and I think a couple have white females that went to these peaks. And I remember just standing there getting really very annoyed at the fact that are we suggesting that a Native person didn't bring those visitors in and help them to get to those peaks Or that we're supposed to assume that these peaks are sitting there, you're a tribal member, and you have had no curiosity for so many centuries to go up there and see
0: what's there. It took a European to go there. Dr. Taylor, you said you were annoyed. As someone who's studied the history for decades as you have, do you ever get really angry. You have such a calm, soothing voice. I wonder if you ever get enraged when you're looking at those plaques at Yellowstone, the Tetons, and do you ever get just really mad?
2: It's a good question you ask, because I've had people, I had a young African-American scholar who was doing some writing and she called me up, and she asked the same question. She says, "How do you do this research, especially for something like the rise of the American conservation movement, power, privilege, and environmental protection? Do you not get very angry because your books don't sound angry, or when mm. I express it to you?" Mm-hmm. And I said to her, "I know how to pace myself, and I know, and it it is a part of, first of all." Um, incredulity, uh, when you first kind of read and see something, and then second, um, dismay, and then third, how can I do something to change it? And yes, that, um, that anger or resentment is there, But I could get a heart attack if I get angry every time I encounter one of this. And another question folks often ask me is, how did it ever occur to you to think, for instance, of talking about someone like Harriet Tubman as an environmentalist or Phyllis Wheatley as being the person who started to write in environmental thinking in ways before Henry David Thoreau, before Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's keeping that calmer demeanor and that calmer way of thinking about this, that my mind takes me into places where I can connect these dots. And sometimes I ask myself or wonder, are you crazy, Dorcita? What makes you think that actually works? But it helps me to do that. Harriet Tubman, I was reading a bedtime story to my twin daughters when they were about three years old. Yes, these are the crazy things that academics read to their children. The story (laughs) of um, the Underground Railroad, that I was reading the children's version of it to them. As I was reading it, I felt I just stopped in my track and I says, she's an environmentalist. She's one of the earliest environmentalist, for her to have been able to, as a woman, to do it on her own, beyond phenomenal. But as I was reading this book, my mind wanders off, and luckily my daughters are drifted off to sleep, and I thought for her to have been able to successfully escape the first time on her own, but do it repeatedly. And freed more slaves than almost anyone else required an incredible amount of environmental knowledge. We can celebrate John Muir, Thoreau, and what they did and their hikes and all of that are important. But here's a woman that hiked more than they did. She did it at night. She did it with dogs chasing her. She did it with the highest bounty for any slave ever on her head. And she was able to successfully do it. So it's the ability to still have this annoyance, as I called it, to be able to move past that, to then be able to connect something like a Harriet Tubman's life story into the environmental narrative that when, When young black kids read that and when I give talks where I talk about that, I've had black people literally jump over chairs and benches to say, I've never, ever seen myself in an environment. You've just made it clear to me why I must care about the environment, how my life is connected to it, how some of the things I've seen my family do and I didn't quite understand how it's a piece of this story and how it's revolutionized how they think.
0: If Joe Biden wins the election, environmental justice advocates are urging him to appoint an indigenous person to lead the U.S. Department of Interior, which includes the Bureau of Land Management and the National Park Service we've been talking about. Overall, the Department of Interior provides over about 12 percent of the American landmass and billions of dollars in oil and gas leases. It's a massive agency that many coastal and urban people don't know much about. What would be the significance historically of an indigenous person leading the U.S. Department of Interior?
2: It would be phenomenal in the sense of, if we think of where does uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs sit? It sits in that same agency that's a part of the Department of Interior. Uh, Part of the control of Native people at one point was to put um, Indian Affairs under the Department, under the War Department. And so to have a native person, an indigenous person, A, first of all, be in control of that much physical land in the US. That in and of itself is just historic. But to be in in a position of authority and decision-making over those resources, many of the oil and gas leases, many of uh, the wind resources, many of those things are on tribal lands. And so the idea that if we're going to talk about diversity, if we're going to talk about inclusion, if we're going to talk about anti-racism, if we're going to talk about Creating a new way forward in the country, we cannot be afraid of looking at uh, who are the people who have stewarded this land, and why haven't we had a native person in a position like that uh, before?
0: My guest today is Dorceta Taylor, professor of environmental justice at the Yale School of the Environment, and an original leader. Of the environmental justice movement. Uh, Dr. Taylor, New Jersey recently uh, passed a law that's been called by some the holy grail of environmental justice. It requires the rejection of new power plants, incinerators, landfills, large recycling facilities, and sewage treatment plants in certain minority and impoverished neighborhoods if the projects present health and environmental risks in addition to the burden those communities are already carrying. What's the significance of that New Jersey new law?
2: Well, what that is really trying to uh, to recognize is the idea of disproportionate impacts. So if you have a community that is a host to maybe, say, a mining facility, do we then think that that community also should have all the waste dumps? Uh, when we we want to have industrial facilities, uh, mining, commercial facilities, why do we think that just one group of people or one set of communities should uh, be the host for those? And so the idea of disproportionate impacts really gets at the idea of when you take all these negative things and you start multiplying them, and place it on one community, one group, that is something that we really ought to take seriously and start looking at what are the overall impacts? What does that mean from a perspective of health, of the community, longevity? How long are those people gonna live? Are we really being very efficient when we are sacrificing people? Because we know their lifespan is gonna be shortened what's going to happen in the schools? Does it cost us more to then be able to um, educate all the kids that are going to be in special ed um, and who will be needing all the extra uh, resources for those things by concentrating so many negative things
0: in one place? Who's going to pay for the hospital? In your 2014 book, Toxic Communities, you looked at a question, why don't people just move away from places like St. Charles, Cancer Alley, and New Louisiana or elsewhere?
2: Yes, because that's a question I would get. I still get them, but I used to get that question a lot. If you do a seminar or you give a talk, and even in a classroom, even teaching students, and these are not reactionary students. These are students trying to grapple with that simple question. Why don't they just move? And so I almost titled the book, <laughs> that was always the title of the book, Why Don't, and it's usually they just move. And even from students of color would ask that question. And it isn't always as simple as that. Because if you live in a community or an area where, because of your race, you are prohibited from living in certain neighborhoods, your family might not just be able to move. Uh, With students, one of the exercises I'd have them do when that question comes up is to precisely map out what are the costs of moving. Uh, People also assume when they say, why don't they just move, that the the low-income or the people of color are moving to the facility after it's been built. They're not asking the question, did the facility come to the neighborhood after people were already there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can you afford to buy? Because if you own a property also in some of those neighborhoods, your property values have dropped sometimes to the point where you will not recoup your cost if, you've sold, if you have to sell the house to then be able to pay off the mortgage. This shocks a lot of students that if you have a property and um, it's beside one of these facilities and it's completely, um, the, the property value has been lost, if you get say a government payout or the cor- or corporation pays you for the property, they don't realize you have to pay off the mortgage on it first before you can do anything. Because they just thought you just pack up and move.
0: Right. We've certainly seen during COVID that knowledge workers have a lot of privilege to move out of cities exactly. or because of fires and people who can't move. Uh, so there's a lot of privilege built into that question. Um, the United States is undergoing uh, a generational transition. Millennials have passed baby boomers as the largest living adult generation. And Joe Biden says he will be a transitional president. If he wins, what advice do you have to young people concerned about the climate? We're talking later here with Jamie Margolin, uh, a teenage uh, climate activist. What advice do you have her and others and her generation to write a new American story on race, power and the environment?
2: I think the young people and for a long time had just incredible uh, hope and incredible admiration for the millennial generation. Is one of the things that they have brought to the table in a very powerful way is they're not afraid or they're not as afraid of racial mixing as their grandparents were or as their parents were. They have grown up going to school together with people from different cultures, backgrounds, classes, They've gone to college where they had to share rooms and dorms. I take people on field trips and I remember being on a field trip with some students and I thought, if your conservative parents from the northern part of the country could see you now, because there are three or four kids in a room where there are different colors of them on a bed. And I remember saying, whose clothes do you have on today? I know that's not yours. (laughs) And they're sharing out their clothes, even their undergarments. And one of the things when I was at Michigan, Michigan deliberately created a set of uh, options for students. So these are not study abroad options. These were these multicultural, shorter term trips that you, a professor takes the students and we all live together. And they did it for exactly that reason. That if you're all miserable and the mosquitoes are all biting you and you're all having an experience together, you break down some of this stuff and all of a sudden you start to see the commonalities and you see the different skill sets. So the millennials bring that piece to the table that they are very much more wanting to understand how to live multiculturally. You saw in the protests kids from every color every stripe, being tear gassed by the police, not running home to the suburbs, and being defiant and and being a part of that. The fierceness of this generation is, that's part of their secret weapon. And they also have lived in homes where they've had to argue some of these cases. A lot of my students say to me, when I go home, I have family members that say some of the most incredibly racist things, and I have to know how to hone my arguments, to speak with them so I don't get thrown out of the house. And so at home, they're fighting some of these battles.
0: Well, Dr. Taylor, thanks for coming on on Climate One and sharing your insights on privilege, power, and the environment.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful.
0: You're listening to a conversation about climate and justice in 2020. This is Climate One. Coming up, how today's youth activists balance fighting for their futures while living their best lives
1: now. I'm just trying to like find joy where I can while the world is in decline, which is a very scary and unsettling thing to do while trying to plan and study for a future that you're not even sure even exists.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Jamie Margolin is co-founder and co-executive director of the youth climate justice organization Zero Hour. At age 18, she's also the author of Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It. A native of the Pacific Northwest, Jamie writes about defending the mountains of her homeland as the primary motivation for her climate activism. I began our conversation by asking how she felt during the fires that are ravaging the American West.
1: I am currently at New York University studying film and television. So I am in New York watching the fires happen from afar. And it's very surreal seeing pictures of my hometown and my parents sending me pictures of the sky. It was ironic. One of my best friends was was catching the ferry. And sent me a picture of a sign and like everything was smoky and a sign that says no smoking or vaping. And it was kind of ironic because breathing the air is like smoking a pack of cigarettes right now. So or more. I don't know the exact statistic, but it was just seeing these images are surreal because back in 2017, the smoke from the wildfires blew over Seattle and coated us in a layer of smog. But it wasn't as bad as it is now. And I couldn't have imagined it getting any worse, but it did. And back then, those initial fires and that initial smog is what propelled me to start Zero Hour, the Youth Climate Justice Organization. And now, like three years later, and it's only gotten worse. And it's very frustrating because I've been doing this work for so long. And yet this is the result. This is what's happening. It's still getting worse. Leaders still haven't taken action. I've been fighting for climate justice for almost five years now. And it's still nothing but just worsening of this crisis.
0: And you're going to college during this time. and You're going to NYU. I read that there's a uh, one of the dorms at F- NYU is now under quarantine. So that seems like a lot to carry for someone like you at this time to watch your home burn while you're in college. And there's a quarantine, uh, COVID quarantine.
1: It's a very difficult situation in many ways um, because of the uncertainty of everything. Like I, it's hard for me to like settle into my life in college because I don't know if there will be an outbreak at my dorm. Like right now my dorm is fine, but they're testing us weekly. And so results are coming in like every week, every week, every week. And I'm just scared. Like what if there are so many positive cases that we get sent home and I have to scramble to find a way to stay in New York? Because my goal is to, to stay here, stay in the city. But if I don't have college housing, then like I'm going to have to scramble and it's going to be difficult. And I don't, I don't know. Like I'm really nervous. That's why people are like. When I FaceTime my friends, they're like, your dorm is so bare and boring. It's just like, why? where are your signs? Where are your posters? I'm like, I'm not going to do home decor right now and I don't know if I have to pack my bag like I'm essentially living out of a suitcase because I haven't like yeah like I unpacked my stuff I put up some to-do lists on my desk and like I'm I put you know, my bed is made everything like that but beyond that I'm not buying a little fridge for it I'm not getting a microwave I'm not getting posters or lights or any of the stuff that all these students have like decked out their dorms I'm like I don't know if I'm going to be sent home tomorrow so I'm just like living very tentatively uncertainly and there's just this anxiety. There's no certainty. So I'm just trying to make the most of each day, but it's difficult to make the most of each day when you have like three essays due. So you're like, I'm going to make the most of the time I have. But then you you look at your homework load and your emails and it's like, it's striking a balance between getting your work done and trying to make the most of it of life when, I mean, people act like 2020 is some strange curse, but honestly, it's all of this is because of long term issues. So I don't know if it's going to get worse. So I'm just trying to like, find joy where I can while the world is in decline, which is a very scary and unsettling thing to do while trying to plan and study for a future that you're not even sure even exists. So I've been very stressed and anxious. And I haven't been able to like exhale and settle in because I don't know if there's anything to settle into.
0: Right. And even, yeah, calmly breathing these days or breathing deeply can be dangerous these days. You write about not losing yourself in your cause and say, remember to care for yourself and be a friend, sibling, lover, whatever. How do you do all that while also the things you mention, but also a growing public profile? You, you know, you're 18, you publish a book, you're talking on radio shows, you're on social media. How do you juggle all that?
1: Um, I think a lot of it is trying to focus on what brings me joy. You know, a lot of people expected me to go into politics, which is why a lot of people were surprised when I made my announcement, like, I'm going to Tisch to study film and television. And people were like, what? Why is she doing that? And they're like, oh, it's because you're going to make climate documentaries, right? And I'm like, nope, I want to do nothing that has anything to do with climate change. Because what I want to do, what I've always wanted, no little girl is like dreaming and she's like, ah, I hope to spend the rest of my life desperately fighting against this massive catastrophe. That's not what I dreamt of when I was little. And I will be fighting because survival is an instinct and I will always be fighting for the survival of our planet. But in terms of my career, for my own sanity, for my own happiness, I need to have something in my life that I'm working towards that has absolutely nothing to do with this crisis and absolutely nothing to do with the climate catastrophe. And so I'm a storyteller and I really love to write screenplays and tell stories and direct and make things come to life. And I love movies and I love shows. And I just I have such a passion for arts and theater and creativity and acting. And I really want to bring all these things together and make beautiful narrative cinema and and TV shows that have Nothing to do with the climate crisis, not because I don't care, but because I need just one aspect of my life that isn't taken over by this crisis.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very wise because it can be all-consuming. I've been in this for going on 15 years and seen a lot of people be consumed by it. And um, you, you write that you're propelled by outrage. Does that outrage ever – how do you keep that outrage in check? Because some ac- activists get really angry and bitter and ineffective
1: my outrage kind of manifests into a general baseline of cynicism and negativity like i'm not punching walls but i am you know like how many more not a desensitization but more of like a normalization of everything being up in flames not just like literally with the west coast being on fire but also just like with the climate crisis if you live and breathe bad news then eventually it's going to like wear you down and i don't really feel like i am angry but i don't i'm not like punching drywall I'm more of just like trying to it, it more manifests into depression for me than it does anger I'm more sad than I am angry like the other day when the fires like when the when it was like hey guys the entire west coast is on fire I was I couldn't finish my homework I couldn't do anything I couldn't re- like I was just completely frozen with terror and fear and I just called up a mentor of mine and I was like literally nothing means anything like the it, with the COVID crisis and us being on the, the edge of fascism with the the current administration and the climate crisis, it all just feels too much. I'm tired. I can't do this. But then I just said that I'm just like, oh my god, I hate this. I can't do this. And then I just get up the next day and do it anyway. It, it's more of just like you have your moment where you like call someone and you're like, literally, the world is trash and nothing means anything. But then all you can do is like continue to act. So my my life, I mean, I had that exact moment three years ago where I was like, literally, nothing means anything. This is horrible. I hate the climate after the the fires in 2017. And then I got up and co-founded Zero Hour. And now, you know, I'm going to get up and, and make art that makes me happy and continue to fight for climate justice and do a push for the election to... Push Donald Trump out. Um, you know, like it, it's more of just like I, I have despair, but then I just get up and do my thing. That's all you really can do.
0: She just joining me. Jamie Margolin is a climate activist and co-executive director of Zero Hour, a climate action organization based in Seattle. Her new book is "Youth to Power: Your Voice and How to Use It." I'm Greg Dalton. Um, you've been quite open about experiencing shame and depression and alienation for being a queer young woman in a world that erases people like you. As someone who has been shamed, how do you think about shaming people on the other side of the climate divide?
1: I feel like being alienated for an identity that you can't control versus alienating others for some their actions that they can control is very different i get that question of it's like oh you hate it when people discriminate against you for being a lesbian so why are you hating on the fossil fuel industry and it's like it's different uh me being born a certain way not hurting anyone is different than people consciously choosing to go into a field, consciously knowing they're hurting people and hurting people, like it's almost like the whole blue lives matter thing. There's no such thing as a blue life. Being a cop is a profession that you choose and you can quit. Um, I feel like the same goes for being a denier of climate change or working for the fossil fuel industry. That's something you can quit. That's something you can change, but an identity isn't. And I think in general, though, in terms of shaming, shaming people in terms of environmentalism, uh, in terms of the individual, it never works. But I feel like in terms of the industries, like the fossil fuel industry, 70 percent of all global emissions are caused by 100 corporations. We should be shaming them. We should be putting such an immense amount of public pressure that they either have no choice to completely change or to move out of the way and just to stop operation because, I mean, the entire West Coast is on fire, so I'm not afraid to hurt a few feelings of the people causing this. You know, it's like I don't really feel sorry for you because of a profession that you chose and destruction that you knowingly and actively created. You see how it's 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 pretty different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think some co-workers might say I hear what you're saying about identity and born and that's that's, you know, that's different than a professional choice. I think some Coal workers would say they don't feel like they have a lot of choice living where they are with the options and education and tools.
1: Oh, I'm not mad at the fossil fuel workers. I'm mad at the executives. I think that, you know, a lot of people don't have it. To be clear, I don't shame like the person who has to work at the coal plant or the person who has to, you know, work on building these pipelines or whatever because that's like their only job and that's all that they have. My anger is never directed at the individual. My anger is directed at those in power. So I'm not angry at the people who mine coal because they had no other option. Like that, they're not the ones responsible for this. I'm talking about the executives because the, the the coal miners did not see the documents about climate change and then bury it and start the propaganda machine. Like they they were just trying to get make a living. I have no hard feelings towards them whatsoever. Um, I'm talking about the executives, the CEOs, the CFOs, the people in charge, the, the propaganda people that they hired, um, the whole operation on top, the Wall Street people, the investors, the bankers. I'm talking about those people. I'm not mad at the little guy. I, I don't blame them at all.
0: And as we approach this election you wrote a book about power youth taking power how do you think about you know youth gaining power taking power now at this time in this tremendous upheaval fires demonstrations in the streets covid um you know is, you know where do you see power shifting
1: yeah, so I wrote a book called Youth to Power Your Voice and How to Use It, which is a guide to being a Young organizer for any cause, even though it says youth in the title though, it's actually useful to anyone of any age. It does have some things in the book where it's like specific to balancing school or getting into college and and stuff like that, but um and like how to balance that whole system. but other than that, a lot of the advice in there is useful whether you're ten or ninety. so it's it's really for everyone. um and I wrote it because. I feel like young people have a power to take action and a power to make change, but it's not the power but but leaders often misinterpret that power. I, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about like what is what power do youth have and what power don't we have. And I made it very clear that we don't have the power of controlling like federal budgets. Um a lot of young people can't vote yet. Or even when we can, it's like we're not – we don't hold the political power in terms of office and don't hold all of these other things. So when leaders are like, oh, young people will change the world, it's like, well and, – and as I talk in the book, like the power that we do have is to shift the needle towards change um, by by shifting cultural – the the culture because culture shifts cause shifts in law. That's why I'm going to to, to study, you know, film and television because – that film and TV changes the culture and then culture changes the society and the laws. Um, so young people have a huge influence on the culture, but we can't actually physically pass, you know, we can't be the ones who pass the green new deal. The people in power do. So I get very frustrated when leaders are like, Oh, youth are so powerful. You're going to save the world. I'm like, literally the world's on fire. You have to do that now. By the time I'm old, I would be old enough to even be in the position that they are in now. It would be too late. So I, 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 I wrote a book about a guide to, to being a young organizer and activist and to help young people take action, which means that I do genuinely believe in youth power. But I make it very clear in the book that it's not young people will be the ones who save the world single handedly because I don't believe that. And I don't believe it's a fair burden to put on people who are just trying to get through high school or college or middle school in a dying world.
0: And Greta Thunberg was very clear about uh calling boomers and others out. That's a cop-out. Don't put that on me. You trashed it. You fix it. And she's been quite like right back at you. I want to go to our uh, lightning round with Jamie Margolin. uh, And I'll mention a a noun and just get the first thing that comes to mind off the top of your head unfiltered uh, when I say this one word or one phrase. Jamie Margolin, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say coming out?
1: Uh, Scary.
0: (laughs) Uh, The TV show Glee.
1: Santana and Brittany.
0: <laughs> Washington Governor Jay Inslee.
1: Interesting and contradictory. <laughs> uh, the Republican Party. Evil. Nancy Pelosi. She said the Green New Dream or whatever, and I do not like her for that. <laughs> as well as other things.
0: Aaron Brockovich.
1: Uh, I don't know who that is. <laughs>
0: She was portrayed by Julia Roberts, won an Academy Award for portraying her in a film uh, before you were born. So that's probably why I don't know why you don't know her. Um, uh, This is true or false. Every climate champion needs a good therapist. True. (laughs) Boomers trashed the planet and should feel guilty about it.
1: False. It's not as black and white. Some people, some quote unquote boomers. Like my abuela in Colombia, like she grew up living off the land. She didn't cause the climate crisis. But like then there are other boomers like Mitch McConnell, who absolutely did. So it's not at black and white.
0: Affluent American boomers. Uh, Last one. True or false. You allow yourself to fully feel the fear flowing from your understanding of how dark the climate science really is.
1: False for most of the time, like true in the action that I take, but false in that like I'm not like in my daily life just thinking like we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed. Otherwise, I can't like go to the store without having a panic attack. True in the sense that like when I act and when I push for policies, I push for them knowing the science, but it's not in the top of my mind. Otherwise, I would just crouch into a ball and be crying and I wouldn't even have the energy to do this interview.
0: Denial is a coping mechanism that helps Yeah. Um,
1: I'm not denying it. I just turn that part of my brain off for the day that I like during the day, unless I'm like actively doing a climate thing, then I'm in that mode. But if I'm not, I turn it off. And I and I just try to like, okay, right now I'm just going to the store and we're not going to think about it.
0: So as we wrap up here, how excited are you about Joe Biden's climate plan?
1: More excited than I was before he changed it, but still like tentatively, like just cautious and like understanding that it's we're going to need to keep pushing and keep pushing for more action like we need a green new deal and i know i mean i know how a lot of the corporate democrats feel like nancy pelosi was like they call it the green new dream or whatever um and i don't appreciate that sentiment when literally half of the other coast is on fire and so the green new dream or whatever is what we need um because the alternative like bernie sanders said solving the climate crisis is expensive as opposed to what people are always like it's so expensive it's so expensive as opposed to what um so i i just really feel like he he could use some more work obviously i'm voting for him i'm pushing for him to win we need to get trump out of there because it would be absolutely catastrophic i don't even want to think about it if trump gets another four years so i'm very pushing hard to get him out of office and biden is the one who's going to get him out of office so we just need to keep pushing like i'm not confident I can't just sit back and be like well he's going to handle it because I don't think that I think we're going to need to get him in and then pressure like hell
0: right that's what Obama said when he got in Um, now make me Jamie Margolin thanks for coming on climate one
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Jamie Margolin is co-founder and co-executive director of Zero Hour and author of Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the Strategy and Content Manager. Steve Fox is Director of Advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.